clapping for a prayer. I love that. That was good. It is good to pray to the Lord. So Christina in our house, she's started this little tradition over the last, I don't know, 10 years or so, where on Valentine's Day morning, you know, whatever day of the week it falls on, she hosts a little Valentine's breakfast for our daughters. And, you know, and they love it. And even now that they're 14, 12, and 10, they still love it. And she does all this cool stuff. She'll have the little decorations out. And usually breakfast is a, is a little different than a normal breakfast on that day. Maybe something sweet, a cinnamon roll, a donut, you know, something like that. Or, but this last year, she did this cool thing where she made a card for each one of the girls. And inside the card, it was like shaped like a big heart. And she had just written 14 things that she liked about each one of them. And they were all very unique, 14, because Valentine's Day, February 14th. And they were all just so unique, you know, just like, I love you. One thing I love about you is just your blue eyes. Or I love the way that you get our dog all riled up, you know, and chase him around the house. Or I love the way that you pray or uh, play with the little kids and the children's ministry when you're helping out, you know, at the nine o'clock service. I, I love this about you. I love that about you. And it's just this cool way for a parent to communicate their love for their child. And I think every parent understands that kind of heart, that kind of mentality, that kind of desire. What we want our children to know is we want our children to know that we love them. We want our children to know that we care for them. We want them to be strong and confident, standing, founded in the love uh, that we have for them. And we understand as we're doing that, as we're trying to do that, that we do that so often very imperfectly. That there is a God in heaven who is the first and original parent. He is the father of all of humanity. And through the blood of Jesus, through the cross of Christ, he becomes the father of every believer. And we merely borrow from him as we parent and bring up our children. And he is a father who desires the same thing. He desires to speak to his children. He desires to communicate over and over and over again his love for us. And the thing about us as human beings is that we so often forget the reality of the love of God over and for our lives. In fact, if I could say it this way from the life of David in this passage, it seems to me that there are three things that David was forgetting and three things that we often forget that God was trying to whisper into David's heart. We often forget, like David, that God loves us, that we're important to him. We often forget that God is strong and powerful and able. And we often forget that God has a plan for our lives individually, that there is something that he wants to do in each one of us individually and uniquely. We often forget these things. And all throughout this passage, what we're going to discover is that God, like a good and gracious father, is working hard whether through whispers or whether through a blatant word from him directly to David, he is going to be communicating to his man today, I love you, I am strong on your behalf, and I have a plan for your life. And the reason why this was so important in David's life is because he was beginning to slip at this moment. You might recall last week as we were going through that portion of David's life, we saw David go to his best friend Jonathan and announce to Jonathan, there is but a step between me and death. 
Saul, his father-in-law, had begun to try to kill David, and David now was fearing for his life. And maybe as we looked at that line, you may have thought to yourself, this seems very different from the man that we saw in his teenage years in Saul's tent. And there, before he went out into battle against Goliath, David said to Saul, God has given me victory over the lion, and God has given me victory over the bear, and God will give me victory over this Philistine as well. There was just this confidence. There was just this belief in the living God. But now, maybe a decade later, David is saying things like, there is but a step between me and death. I actually believe that I am in danger. I am about to die. Even though God had told David that he would be the king in Israel, and he was not yet the king of Israel, so in order for God to fulfill his promise, he must keep David alive, David still believed that he was at the brink of death. You might have even noticed, and maybe you even brought it up in your life group this last week, that David had begun last week to begin to slip into lying fabricating and twisting the truth. You see, he had asked his friend Jonathan to tell Saul on his behalf that his brothers had asked him to go to Bethlehem to keep the new moon feast. Remember that from last week? But David did not do that. His brothers had not given him that invitation. All he was doing was waiting by the rocks for three days to hear a word from Jonathan, whether he was safe and could return or whether he was in danger and needed to depart. And maybe last week when you saw that, you kind of talked yourself into being okay with that in David's life. You know, he's stressed out. I'm sure if I had a father-in-law who tried to kill me a dozen separate times, I'd probably also, you know, lie a little bit. I'd probably also panic a little bit and freak out a little bit. But that pattern continues in David's life here in this chapter. In this section, we're going to see that he is far from a perfect man. Because all throughout God's Word, when God records the life of His people, He records it honestly. And even this God-hearted man had valleys in his life where he was not at his best. Oh, how we must have patience with one another on this Christian journey. Because there are going to be times where you show up to your life group, or your friend shows up to to your life group, and they are not at their best in Christ Jesus. But we must believe that the day is coming, that God is drawing us out of that low spot into the better version of ourselves. Okay, so let's think about what God was doing with David in this chapter. We knew, you noticed in verse 1 that it says that David fled to the city of Nob. All right, we don't know a lot about Nob, but we do know that at this time, the priests had the tabernacle there in that city. You see, uh, David would have in his heart later on, once he was king, the desire to build God a permanent house called the temple. And his son Solomon would actually be the one to build God that permanent house. But at this era, during this time, the house of God was a temporary place. It was a tent. It was a tabernacle. And it could be broken down and it could be moved from place to place, from city to city. And it's actually kind of hard to track the location of the tabernacle during the entire reign of Saul. You know, there were times the ark was with the Philistines, times the ark was back in Israel, times the ark was in hiding, times the tabernacle was in in one place and the ark was in the other. Uh, But here we learn now that the tabernacle at least uh, is located and more than likely the ark itself is also located here in this little town called Nob. Now we shouldn't think of this as a really big city. 
Uh, We're going to learn later that there were 86 priests and their families who populated this little village. So you could imagine 86 heads of household, along with their wives and their children, they're populating this small little village. And at this point, not a lot of people in Israel are coming to visit the tabernacle. Spirituality in Israel is at a low ebb. So people aren't offering sacrifices to God. By and large, people aren't rushing to the tabernacle to worship the Lord. But that's where David runs. The priest at the time is named Ahimelech. We we read of him. He's a little shocked when David arrives, you know, because he recognizes David. This is the giant killer. He's Saul's son-in-law, and he knows about David, and he knows that David runs special errands, uh, wages battles on Saul's behalf. And so he's wondering, what are you doing here? He's a little bit afraid. He's a little bit terrified. And then did you see there the lie that came out of David's mouth? It's found there in verse 2. David said to the priest, the king has charged me with a matter and said to me, let no one know anything of the matter about which I send you and with which I have charged you. I've made an appointment with the young men for such and such a place. And then he made his request in verse three, give me five loaves of bread or whatever is here. Now, let me ask you the question. Had Saul sent David on a special mission? No, the answer to that question is no. He had not, unless you count a special mission as, I'm going to kill you, and then you have to run. That's a special mission. <laughs> Saul had not sent David on a special mission, but that's what he had announced to Ahimelech. He begins to lie to, a very, to, to the very priest of God. But notice, what he asks Ahimelech for is he asks him for food. I don't know why he asks specifically for five loaves of bread. Maybe he had four young men with him. Jesus indicates in the New Testament that David actually did have young men with him. But but the, the portion of being sent on this mission from Saul, it's untrue. But he asks for bread, and, and Ahimelech responds by telling him, in this whole village, I mean, just think of this. Think about a little town with 85 families in it 86 families in it in the here and now if you walked into it destitute and in need of food could you imagine them saying there is only one source of extra food in this whole town no you'd expect that maybe in every home in every part of this little village there's a little a little place to go to the market or something and buy some food but ahimelech announces to him in scanning the whole town There's only one source of extra food for you to receive. It just so happens to be the bread that has been offered to God. You see, in the tabernacle, they had a few different elements. There was an altar of incense. There there were candlesticks that they would keep illuminated uh, before the Lord. And there was a table called the table of showbread. And the table of showbread was a place where each day they would bring a fresh supply of bread, the priests would, and lay them on this table. It, was, it, it signified a lot of beautiful different things, even things about Jesus himself, who would stand and say, I am the bread of life. It would remind them of God feeding them miraculously in the wilderness. But one thing that it would say was, I, God, want to be in fellowship with my people. I want to eat bread with my people. You bring me bread, we'll have a little meal together. But each day, the priests would come in and bring a fresh supply of bread, and they would take the old bread out of the tabernacle. And it was actually unlawful for a non-priest to partake of that bread. 
But Ahimelech, he kind of thinks about it for a second, and he says to David, you know, it's the only bread we got. And so he runs a quick little diagnostic of the situation, and he says, hey, you know, there's some Old Testament laws that say that uh, you've got to be clean before God before you can eat this. At the very least, you've got to be clean. That's where I'm going to draw the line. And so there were some laws that said that you had to keep yourself from a sexual relationship for a set period of time before going into the tabernacle. It was an Old Testament kind of thing. Don't worry about it. Today, you married couples. Uh, but as he announced that to him, David says, yeah, we're clean. Me and the young men that are with us, we're clean. And then Ahimelech gives him the bread and he eats it. Okay, what does this mean for us? Well, it's actually interesting because in the New Testament, Jesus talks about this particular movement in David's life. There was a day in the life of Jesus where he was walking through the grain fields, walking through the fields on the Sabbath day. And by that time in Israel's history, the Sabbath had become this very restrictive kind of thing. And as they were walking through the fields, Jesus' disciples beginning to feel some liberty around Jesus, beginning to feel some freedom around Jesus, beginning to realize that Jesus is not like this religious kind of guy, but that he's actually, you know, there for them and loves them and everything. They begin to feel comfortable enough to do something that the Pharisees of that day said you could not do. They began to pluck heads of grain from the fields that they were passing by. This was something that actually in the law of God, on the other six days of the week, you were allowed to do in Israel. You couldn't go out there with a basket and start taking food for yourself. But just as you were journeying, you could pick some grain, put it in your mouth, eat it, get some nutrients in in there, and kind of get some energy. And so Jesus' disciples did that, but it was on the Sabbath. And so it tells us in Mark chapter 2 that the Pharisees appeared. (laughs) I don't know what that means. I just imagine them with like, I imagine the Pharisees like having this little thing the night before where they're like, we know where he's going to be. And they're like making hats with like wheat on them and stuff and like hiding in the, hiding in the bushes and everything. And they pop out and they say, how is it that your disciples do what is unlawful to be done on the Sabbath? Now it wasn't unlawful according to the Old Testament. It was unlawful according to them. You see, they had taken the, commands of God, the gift of God of the Sabbath, which was supposed to be a beautiful blessing. I mean, one day a week where nobody works. That's beautiful. That's like a praise Jesus kind of situation. You know, that's good. But they had turned it into a demand that, that where nobody looked forward to the Sabbath. Now, they said things like, if you pull that grain up, it's like you're reaping a harvest. You're working. If you spit on the ground and it lands on a rock, it's all good, but if you spit on the ground and it lands on the dirt and, it, and the spittle rolls a little bit, that is plowing. <laughs> I mean, these were their rules. If you have an orange, that's too big of a burden for you to carry on the Sabbath. You can't carry a full orange in your pocket, but we'll let you cut the orange in half and put that in your pocket. That sounds miserable to me. God, gave, God made the orange with this nice little cover on it so that it stays in there until I'm ready to eat it. You know, they didn't have Ziploc bags. They had to just put these cut oranges in their pocket. Come on. So he made it, they made it into a miserable thing. Jesus replied to them by saying, have you not read? I always love when Jesus says that to the Pharisees because they had read, they had memorized it. But he says, have you never read that David, 
During the days of, and he refers to Ahimelech's son, Abiathar, who was also a priest at the time. He says, have you not read how in the days of Abiathar the priest, David ate from the table of the showbread, the, the table of the presence, bread that was not lawful for him to eat? Did you not read about that? And then Jesus followed it up with his own commentary because the Sabbath, it was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. I gave these things to humanity to bless them. I did not create humanity to have these laws. All right. So what I'm trying to say to you here is that this is not the loud voice of God to David saying, David, I love you. It's not a blatant messenger of God standing there with the Bible and reading John 3.16 to David and saying, God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. It is not the blatant, clear voice of God saying, David, I love you. But it is the implied whisper of God saying, I love you. You, David, are so valuable to me that I am willing to approve my priest setting aside not the moral law of God, but the ceremonial law of God for you so that you, my man, that I love and that I care for, can have food to eat. I believe that God was trying to whisper into David's ear and remind him, you are important to me. And I believe that if we're listening, God is constantly trying to whisper that into our ears. There are times, of course, that God wants to say that in a very blatant, clear kind of way. There are times where someone will open up the Bible, read of the love of God to us, and declare it to us. There are times where we will read in Ephesians chapter 2 that we who were dead in trespasses and sins, dead through and through spiritually before God, that in spite of all of that, there was a God who was rich in love who through the sending of His Son made a way for us to be resurrected, brought back to life in Him. There are times that we will hear that message very loudly and very clearly, but I believe that we have a Father in Heaven who is listing out those things quite constantly saying, man, I love you. I love you. It might simply be that as we pass through life, we're going through our days and maybe you pick up your your infant child and in those those first couple of weeks, you know, and months as they're just kind of getting their eyesight and they're trying to, trying to get their equilibrium and all that. You're like, do they even know I'm here? Do they even notice me? And then that day begins to come where their eyes become clear. They begin to focus. You're no longer just a big blurry sound that's coming in their direction, but they start to fixate their eyes upon you. And then for the first time, they start to smile. And it's not like a, uh, you know, they passed gas and they, they smiled, smile. It's like a real smile. Like you said something and they smile back at you. It could be that it's through that that the Lord says, I love you. I'm looking at you. I see you. It could be that you're sitting there at your breakfast table and you're looking out the window and you see a bird that's climbing on a branch and, and you see that little bird. I, I mean, I love looking at the birds because to me, I just look at their little lives and I think, you're just so content. 
You're so happy. You, have, you don't have a care in the world. You're just fine. And you might think of Jesus' teaching in Matthew chapter 6. It is the sparrows of the field are covered and protected and blessed by God. So God, if he covers and protects and loves these little sparrows, he's taking ca- care of his people. It might be that you go down to the beach in California to watch the sun rise in Florida like I was in yesterday to see the, or excuse me, to see the sun set and in Florida the sun rise. And you might be there and as, as the sun rises or as the sun sets, you hear the voice of the Father saying, I made this for you. There might be a million ways. It might be that after a, a long season of drought, the rain pours down and the rain is over and you go outside of your home and you smell the smell of fresh rain and you say, I love that. God, thank you for thinking of me and thinking of us. There might be a million ways that the Father in heaven is trying to whisper into your heart, I love you. Someone may express generosity towards you, and this is a a vehicle from your Father in heaven to, to show His love to you. But God, I believe, if we're listening, if we're listening, is constantly trying to communicate His love for His people. And I believe that as this bread came out, God was trying to whisper to David, I care about you. You are important to me. All right, so receive that this morning. He's, we are important to him. All right, now David goes on after it says in verse 7 that he saw Doeg the Edomite, and we're going to remember that name. It's going to be a villain in this story. But David then asked God, we read this already, he asked God for, or excuse me, asked Ahimelech for a weapon. He says, I, I came on my journey with great haste. I don't have a weapon. Do you have a spear or do you have a sword here in this town? All right, so Ahimelech, Notice how he replies. He tells David, he says, in this town, there is one extra sword. All right, you got to remember, these are the priests. These guys aren't the warriors in Israel. They're the uh, priests in Israel. They're, they're uh, there to facilitate the worship of God in Israel. So they have no weapons, but they have one weapon. They have one sword. It just so happens that the one sword that they have is the sword of Goliath. The very guy that David had killed you know, a decade or more earlier. And, uh, you know, he tells him, he's like, well, we, we have one sword. It's covered in a cloth. And it's, a, it's, a, it's an impressive sword. And, and, and David says, yeah, there's no sword like it. Give it to me. Does it strike you as mere coincidence that in all of Nob, in all of Israel, in the entire world, the one place that the sword of Goliath was at, at that one moment, was right there where David had run in his first moment away from Saul. Now, I cannot receive this as a coincidence. I receive this, again, as the voice of God to David. What do you imagine God was trying to speak to David as this sword appeared? Don't you think that God was trying to speak to David, look, I am powerful, I am strong. Don't you believe that God was trying to remind David of a previous time in his life where God had marvelously, powerfully worked in his heart and life? Don't you think that David, who was beginning to fear that that he was going to die and that he, he was in danger and that God was not strong, don't you think that God was trying to whisper into his heart, I'm able, David. I'm strong. 
don't you remember what I have done? Look, I believe that this is something that the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords is trying to constantly whisper into your heart and into my heart. We so easily forget the ability of God. We so easily forget the power of God. We so easily forget the strength of God. But he's trying to remind us of this reality. He's trying to remind us of those previous victories. Look, it it, it might be for you that the whisper of God into your ear, remembering his victories, just comes as you're out and about in your daily life. Maybe one day you're driving down the road and you drive by an old bar that used to enslave you. And as you drive by it, you realize, I am not pulled in that direction. I no longer am even making a decision because I'm just moving. I'm not, there's not even a thought in my mind that I'm going to go there. And maybe the Holy Spirit would remind you in that moment, you have been set free. And you're to remember that victory from Him. Maybe for you, it came on the moment that you went to your 10-year, your 5-year, your 20-year, your 30-year, your whatever-year high school reunion. And you showed up there, and people looked at your life and said, who are you? You know, who, who even are you? I remember you. I remember those good old days, and you're just a brand new creation. And maybe, it, maybe it's something like that. Maybe it's the memory of a sin that used to beset you that you used to constantly give into anger or wrath or hatred or bitterness or gossip or slander or something of of that ilk, and you realize, you know, I still, of course, battle. I still, of course, am tempted. But by the grace of God, there go I. But He has taken me so far. Maybe those are the victories that you look to, or maybe all you can look to is the cross of Jesus Christ and His great victory there on your behalf. But the Lord, I think, is constantly trying to whisper His victory, His power into our hearts and into our minds. And I think here, He was speaking to David, trying to tell him, I am strong on your behalf. You know, we just had the Olympics, right? And during the Olympics, uh, all of the nations, you know, we're all trying to keep track of how many medals, you know, our nation gets. And, and each individual athlete, you know, they get those medals, you know, the gold, the silver, and the bronze. And, and those medals, you know, mean something, right? You know, for the rest of their lives, they're going to have that Olympic medal that they, that they won, that they worked so hard for. And, you know, for some athletes, you know, maybe if they're you know, very young, maybe 17, 18 years old, or maybe in their mid-20s, there might be a hope that, hey, I got a medal this time, and in four more years, I still might be in my athletic career, and I might be able to win another medal. But three decades go by, four decades go by, five decades go by. That medal no longer means that. In other words, they might pull that medal out of the drawer and say, I remember 40 years ago when I was able to win this medal. But they will not look at that medal and say, 40 years ago I won this medal and I think I could win another one. No, unless it's curling, maybe that's sport. (laughs) But for the most part, they're going to look at that medal in 40 years and say, I can't do that anymore. I can't do that anymore. There's a past victory, but I couldn't win it today. But that is not the way it is with the way the Lord works in our lives. 
You see, every previous victory all the way back to the cross of Jesus Christ from which all victories flow from, every previous victory is further evidence in our own lives today that God is able and powerful and strong to win the victory for us today. This is one of the reasons that I believe that reading the Bible regularly is very important for the Christian soul in life because it's not only your personal victories that God wants to remind you of, but he wants you to have friends in the Bible. He wants David to be your friend and Samuel to be your friend and Paul to be your friend and Peter to be your friend and Mary to be your friend. He wants all these figures to be your friends so that you can even borrow from their victories. And remember the way that God was faithful to them and so that he'll show his faithfulness and his strength to you. Okay, so the priest gives David the sword. The next thing that we read was that David then ran to a city called Gath. That might not mean a whole lot to you until I explain to you that Gath is the hometown of Goliath. All right? He's carrying Goliath's sword. He goes to the Philistines. Some of you right now are thinking, that's crazy. Why would you run there for comfort? Why would you run there for help? Until we pause and we think about the things that we've run to comfort and help and aid at times of panic in our own lives. But David went to Gath. He's older at this point. He's no longer the teenager that killed Goliath. So perhaps there's the reality that his physical appearance has changed. You know, don't you, when you picture teenage David defeating Goliath, don't you picture him all clean shaven? He can't even grow any stubble yet, you know, kind of that kind of kid, you know, the, the, the red face and, and uh, you know, good looking, you know, young kind of guy. But, but now, you know, 10 plus years later, he's older. He maybe has thrown on some muscle mass. He's no longer the small, wiry little guy that he was before. And maybe, maybe now he's, he's, he's got a beard going on. And maybe he thinks to himself, they won't recognize me. Who knows? Doesn't say. But he arrives in Gath. And Achish, the king of the Philistines in that town, he, it looks like he receives him. Until Achish's servants, we read this, they come around and they say, hey, Is not this David the king of the land of whom they sang, Saul has slain his thousands, but David his tens of thousands? The idea there is that when they sang those songs about David, it's like these servants of Achish are saying, hey, Philistine king, Philistine king. The song could have said, Saul has slain his thousands, David has slain his tens of thousands of Philistines. This guy has made a living for the last decade attacking us, defeating us. And yet, now you have received him. And when David heard it, he grew afraid, fearful. And he feigned insanity, began spitting down on his beard, more than likely because in that era and in that culture, insane people they were very superstitious about thought there was some kind of demonic element involved, and so they wanted to have nothing to do with them. And so that's how he secured his freedom. Okay. Remember I told you, I think that David was struggling to hear, God loves me, I'm important to him. I think he was struggling to hear, God is powerful. But I think he was also struggling to hear, and he has a plan for my life. 
He had been anointed years earlier as the future king in Israel, but apparently that was gone from his mind. And now he goes to the Philistines, and notice what they call him. They say, is not this the king of the land? Let me ask you, was David at this point the king of the land? No, not yet. Saul was still on the throne. Saul was still the king. But it was almost as if the Philistines believed it more than David believed it. And again, I told you, God loves to whisper himself to us, his children. And I think here he was pursuing David all the way into the gates of Achish and trying to say to David, I have a plan for your life. I'm even going to recommunicate my plan for you through the mouth of these pagan Philistines who do not love me and do not know me and will not submit to me. And even through them, you're going to hear and be reminded that I have a plan for your life. You see, it says in Ephesians 2, verse 10, that we are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works that He has foreordained for us to walk in. In other words, for the believer, He has a plan for our lives. He has a desire for our lives, yet we so often forget it. We so often get discouraged from it. Life begins to swallow us up, and we cease to realize the beautiful plans of God over our life. But would you allow the still, small voice of the Spirit to remind you, I have a plan for you. you know, this last weekend, while I was at this conference with all these different youth pastors and their wives and volunteers and different leaders that are working with youth. I was just chatting with a bunch of people, and a lot of you know this because you use the, this resource, but I spend a decent chunk of my time and my life and have done this for the past few years uh, studying through various books of the Bible that I'm not teaching live, but that I'm teaching in a recorded studio environment to post online. And the reality is, as you can imagine, there are times where you're sitting there by yourself with a microphone wondering, is anybody else but me going to be blessed by this Bible study? <laughs> you know, and you just kind of wonder. And many of you are so gracious, you know, to say, oh, I heard this, I heard that, you know, and so that's encouraging. And I can see, you know, how many people are accessing them and downloading them and all of that. So that's encouraging. But sometimes it helps to hear, to see a name with a number. And this young leader came up to me as we were just all hanging out, and I was speaking with them, this married couple. And the wife, she shared with me, she said, you know, the whole time that I was in Bible college, I was supplementing everything I was learning, listening to you also teach through the Bible in that studio. And it just blessed my heart. It was just, it was just what I needed to hear at that moment in time to, for, for me, for, for my life. To hear the Lord say, I have a plan for you. Now that's not God's plan for you. He has a different thing for you. And so we must allow the, the Father in heaven to whisper that into our hearts. Okay, so I've said a lot about those 15 verses. And all I really want to do is I want to read to you the 22nd chapter. There's some evil stuff in it, but I want to read it to you because... I want you to see how this episode in David's life ends. And then we'll wrap it up and take communion together. 
It says in chapter 22 that David departed from there and escaped to the cave of Adullam. And when his brothers and all his father's house heard it, they went down there to him. And everyone who was in distress and everyone who was in debt and everyone who was bitter in soul gathered to him and he became captain over them. And there were with him about 400 men. And David went from there to Mizpah of Moab and he said to the king of Moab, please let my father and mother stay with you till I know what God will do for me. David was one-eighth Moabite through his great-grandmother Ruth. And he left them with the king of Moab, and they stayed with him all the time that David was in the stronghold. Then the prophet Gad said in verse 5 to David, do not remain in the stronghold, depart and go into the land of Judah. So David departed and went into the forest of Herath. Now Saul, verse 6, heard that David was discovered. This is the evil portion of this story. We get to see Saul's wickedness and depravity, how far he'd gone. And the men who were with him. And Saul was sitting at Gibeah under the tamarisk tree on the height with his spear in his hand. And all the servants were standing about him. And Saul said to his servants who stood about him, Hear now, people of Benjamin, will the son of Jesse give every one of you fields and vineyards? Will he make you all commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds that all of you have... Uh, conspired against me no one discloses to me when my son makes a covenant with the son of jesse none of you is sorry for me or discloses to me that my son has stirred up my servant against me to lie in wait as it is this day then doeg then answered doeg the edomite who stood by the servants of saul i saw the son of jesse coming to nob to ahimelech the son of ahitub and he inquired of the lord for him and gave him provisions and gave him the sword of goliath the philistine then the king sent to summon ahimelech the priest the son of ahitub and all his father's house the priests who were at nob and all of them came to the king and saul said here now son of ahitub and he answered here i am my my lord And Saul said to him, why have you conspired against me, you and the son of Jesse, in that you have given him bread and a sword and have inquired of God for him so that he has risen against me to lie in wait as it is this day? Then Ahimelech answered the king, verse 14, and who among all your servants is so faithful as David, who is the king's son-in-law and captain over your bodyguard and honored in your house? Is today the first time that I have inquired of God for him? No, let not the king impute anything to his servant or to all the house of my father, for your servant has known nothing of all this, much or little. And the king said, verse 16, you shall surely die, Ahimelech, you and your father's house. And the king said to the guard who stood about him, turn and kill the priests of the Lord. This is almost as low as it gets for Saul. Because their hand also is with David, and they knew that he fled and did not disclose it to me. But the servants of the king would not put out their hand to strike the priests of the Lord. They just could not bring themselves to that level of evil. Then the king said to Doeg, this man is an unbeliever. He says, you turn and strike the priests. And Doeg the Edomite turned and struck down the priests and killed on that day 85 persons who wore the linen ephod. That was the garment of the priests. And Nob, the city of the priests, he put to the sword, both man and woman, child and infant, ox, donkey, and sheep, he put to the sword. Just a horrible event. But one of the sons of Ahimelech, the son of Ahitub, named Abiathar, escaped and fled after David. And Abiathar told David that Saul had killed the priests of the Lord. And David said to Abiathar, I knew on that day when Doeg the Edomite was there that he would surely tell Saul, I 
have occasioned the death of all the persons of your father's house. Stay with me. Do not be afraid, for he who seeks my life seeks your life. With me, you shall be in safekeeping. I just want you to see that the last word of this episode in David's life is the word safekeeping. In other words, he looks at this young priest, the one survivor, and he says, if you're with me, you're safe. He would not have said that at the beginning of this episode. At the beginning of this episode, he would have said, if you're with me, you're in danger. But at the end, he says, if you're with me, you are safe. Because he had finally heard the Lord say, I love you, I'm strong, and I have a plan for your life. How did he hear it? I told you in the first chapter that God was whispering it to him, but in this chapter, God was shouting it to him. Through his time alone with God in the cave, through the prophet Gad, who became his own personal prophet, speaking to him and saying, go back to Judah, and through Abiathar coming into his life and realizing that he needed to take responsibility for this young man and offer him his protection. You can go through your whole Christian life and the Father will be whispering to you, I love you. He will be whispering to you, I am strong for you. And He will be whispering to you, and I have a plan for your life. But if you want to hear it loudly, if you want to hear Him shout it into your life quite constantly, then regularly get alone with God. Spend time in His presence alone. Open up the Bible and read it and pray and cry out to Him. And have godly messengers in your life who will declare to you the Word of God. Whether they be pastor or friend or life group leader or elder or mentor, let those people into your life. And then thirdly, take responsibility for somebody else. Because as you do in Christ, you start realizing, man, God has a plan for me. This is how he wants to use me. These are some of the gifts that he's given to me. And with that, David had gone through a revival and could say, I am safe. I am safe. So that's it. That's what I got for you today. Let us not forget that the Lord... No, you don't need to do that. You don't need to do that. I'm not asking for that. I just want you to know the Lord loves you. And the Lord is strong for you, and the Lord has a plan for your life. So one of the greatest ways that we get to be reminded of that is through communion. This is God telling us this, I love you, and I have a plan for you. So let's pray and ask the Lord to help us. Lord, thank you so much for your kindness. Thank you so much for your grace. Toward